So we've been making comments for five years now. That's over 100 episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the Commons team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canadaland supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. Okay, so this week on Canada Land Commons, we want to get into the real talk on Canada's finances. Indeed we do. And in fact, people may have heard uh, earlier this year that the federal government put out a surplus budget, except now it looks like we're heading for slow economic growth and maybe even headed into an R word. No, don't say it. You're not allowed to say it. Recession. Uh, Joe Oliver's going to be so mad. I caught wind of that. And you know what, Supriya? I hear that kind of economic talk in the news. And I know that there are people across the country who, when this topic comes up, They just zone on out because, honestly, people tend to not understand exactly what this stuff means or understand why they should care about it. Yeah, I I, I get that 100%, and I would put myself in that camp, too. So I guess it's a pretty good thing that you and I are here to give it to people straight. We've got two smart guys joining us in a moment, and they're going to give us the goods, the straight goods, on how much the federal government owes and who they owe it to. And to share their perspectives on what that exactly means and why it matters to you and me. Supriya, it is so nice to have you back. Always great to be here. I'm Andre Demise. I'm Supriya Devetti, in for Desmond Cole. And this is Canada Land Comments. This episode is brought to you by Audible, the world's best online audiobook service. One book that listeners of Canada Land Commons might like is Capital in the 21st Century by Thomas Piketty. And in this book, Piketty takes a look at economic data from 20 different countries going as far back as the 18th century to essentially answer the question, is income inequality as large as was predicted by Karl Marx? You can read this book or any other one in Audible's 180,000 volume library for free with a 30-day membership. Just visit audibletrial.com slash CanadaLand to get started. This week, we're joined by Mike Moffitt. Mike's an assistant professor at the Ivy Business School. Uh, he's also the chief economist at the Moet Center. Okay, correct me if I'm wrong here, Mike. You're a two-time gold medalist in dodgeball. I didn't even know dodgeball had a competition where gold medals were awarded. Yes, uh, we have for the last uh, three years now, and Canada's uh, won gold in the last two. To get you like trained rigorously, do they throw monkey wrenches at you? or I, I, I'm actually the head coach, so I'm the one throwing <laughs> monkey wrenches at other people. This uh, is fantastic. I don't know how we're going to follow that, but we're also joined by Aaron Woodrick. He's currently the director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, a recovering lawyer, and a former political blogger. Aaron, can you tell me briefly about what the Canadian Taxpayer Federation is all about, and if you guys also partake in any dodgeball? <laughs> we just dodge attacks from our opponents, frankly. But we're a group that has three basic principles. We, we speak out in favor of low taxes, uh, less waste, and accountable government. All right, so let's start with the basics. Um, another one of you guys can take this. 
What is government debt? Sure. So uh, government debt is basically the accumulated amount of money uh, that the federal government owes to a variety of bondholders. That debt is used to pay for infrastructure and a variety of things uh, that we use that, that have a long useful life. So if you're building a new highway, that might last 30, 40, or even 100 years. So it doesn't make sense if it pay for the entire thing up front. Uh, how the government pays for this debt is it issues a bond. So it's basically a promise to pay back uh, that has uh, an interest rate associated with it and a timeline. So uh, that timeline could be anywhere from three months to 50 years. Okay, so if you walk into your local bank and you pick up like a Government of Canada bond, this is pretty much what that is. Yeah, exactly. So Canada's savings bond is uh, one of the types of bonds uh, that the federal government sells. But Aaron, we're constantly hearing about government debt being a bad thing. So I'm assuming you have a different view. Am I correct here? Yeah, I don't want to make the statement that all debt necessarily is bad. I would say that too much debt, uh, you start to run into a problem. I know that uh, invoking the Greece comparison is an extreme example, but that's a case where debt ran away with itself. The other thing that Mike touched on is that when you invested in things like infrastructure, like you build a bridge, uh, you build something that has a long lifespan that people are going to use for like decades and decades, I think that that is a reasonable case that you could spend on that. If you're spending it on things just to keep the lights on, if you're spending it on things you're using and consuming today, I think that's where you start to get into some serious problems. What might some of those things be? Oh, well, to take a good example, in Ontario, uh, they have a fairly large provincial debt and and it's existing deficit still, which means they're still borrowing every year. A recent study showed that two-thirds of the money that they're borrowing right now are going towards things like paying for teacher salaries, healthcare workers. Those are good things, but the problem is they're being used up today, right? They're being used for people today, but you're borrowing the money from people tomorrow. If you're paying for something like a bridge, the people tomorrow will get to use that bridge. So we run into this problem where you're borrowing from the future to pay for stuff today. You used the other D word there, deficit. Can you please just give a bit of a background on what the difference is between debt and deficit? Yeah, debt is just the accumulation of deficits. So in one year, say in 2015, if you spend more money than you take in, you have a deficit. Now, if you don't pay back that deficit, it starts to pile up over time into debt. Okay, and how often is it that a government actually uh, balances? That is, that uh, they, they don't run deficits. <laughs> Less frequently than we would like. In fact, over the last sort of 35, 40 years, uh, almost all the time there's been a deficit. There was a streak in the mid-90s under Jean Chrétien and Paul Martin where they uh, ran a surplus, which means they had money left over. And then only again this year, we went back to balance. So the vast majority of the time, 75, 80% of the time, we spend more than we take in. Mike, you're an economist. Uh, I am not. And I assume many of our listeners are not. Uh, Can you explain to us, I guess, pretty briefly why non-economists should care about things like government debt and deficit? Well, I think it is uh, important because if you run up uh, too large of a debt, uh, you you have to pay interest payments on that debt. And those interest payments crowd out your ability to pay for health care or education or, as my friends at the Canadian Taxpayer Federation, I'm sure, would like uh, tax cuts. So that's really uh, what the big concern is. The other secondary concern is that if your debt gets too large, people might not want to lend you money, as we've seen in various countries around the world. We've even seen it in Canada. Uh, Saskatchewan ran, ran into this problem 20 years ago where they're having difficulty uh, getting money on the bond markets because their books have been so bad. Is there an amount of debt that would actually be healthy for a country to have? And how far do you have to go before you end up in a Greece-like situation? Well, I mean, look, I think there's a lot of other factors involved with Greece, as people point out. 
It's not just simply a matter of borrowing debt. Uh, there were cultural issues there. They weren't collecting taxes. There's also a, a very complicated monetary situation, which means, uh, you know, in Canada, we have a central bank and, our, you know, our federal government decides how much money to spend. The bank prints the money. In Europe, uh, there's only one central bank for a whole bunch of countries. So there's a, there's a bunch of other things going on there as well. But, you know, Mike touched on the, uh, the interest payment. I mean, I think for us, that is a big issue because last year we spent almost $30 billion paying interest on federal debt. That's a lot of money. That's more money than we pay, for example, on all our spending for national defense. It's, it's more than any other single thing we spend money on. So that is money that if we didn't have that debt, we could debate what to do with it. If you want more spending, you could spend it on things. If you want tax cuts like us, you can cut taxes. But we don't really have that choice because we have to use it for interest payments right now. So how much debt is the Canadian government in right now? And how do we compare, you know, with, I guess, comparable jurisdictions? It's about $616 billion, which sounds like a lot of money, but when it you take it as a percentage of the size of the GDP of the country, it's actually relatively modest. So we're doing much better than most of our counterparts around the world. Our GDP to debt ratio, I think, is around 35 to 40%, whereas in Japan, it's over 200. So overall, it's hard to say that the federal government has a debt problem. What's a GDP for some of our listeners who may not know? So, so GDP is uh, just basically the volume of stuff that gets produced and the value of stuff that gets produced. So in Canada, I believe that's somewhere in the $1.5 to $1.6 trillion. So this debt to GDP ratio gives you an indication of how much debt a federal government or a provincial government is running relative to the size of their economy. Okay, so that, that kind of brings an interesting parallel here because um, the both of you may not know, but I actually work in, I've worked in the financial industry for a very long time myself. And when I hear people like get really upset, oh my gosh, this country is how many million or billions of dollars in debt. It doesn't really phase me that much. It's almost like saying, oh my goodness, you're $500,000 in debt. And the reason you're $500,000 in debt is because you own a $750,000 home, which is not necessarily a bad thing if you have the income to pay for it. So is there a little bit of, like, of exaggeration and hype going on here? Because I, I tend to get the sense that people just throw out this gigantic number and expect us to be really scared. But once the numbers actually shake out, we're not in that bad of a situation. I think it cuts both ways. When you throw out big numbers that are just well beyond anything most people are ever going to have to deal with, some people will not be able to tell whether that's a lot or not, right? If we say 600 billion or 6 trillion, what does that mean to the average person? That's just a whole lot of money. So I agree. When you throw out a big number, some people might be paranoid and think it's worse than it is. But you also get the reverse problem where people can never recognize when it actually becomes really serious. I want to talk a little bit about the budget this year. So Finance Minister Joe Oliver, he puts out a surplus budget. There's lots of applause everywhere that this happened. It's the first time in a while. However, now that looks like that may not be the case. There's a bit of a misnomer uh, when we say that a politician releases a balanced budget. Uh, What's actually happening is that they're projecting a balanced budget. So they're saying, well, if we spend as much as we think we're going to spend and we bring in as much revenue as we think we're going to bring in, then the the budget will be balanced. We won't have a deficit. But that projection is based on a lot of things. Most importantly, it's based on the state of the economy. How well do we think the economy is going to do? So what do we think inflation is going to be at? What do we think economic growth is going to be at? What, what do we think interest rates are going to be at? So that's all a projection. Well, what's happened since then is the economy hasn't performed nearly as well as uh, we, we've anticipated. In the budget, they say uh, the economy is going to grow at about 2% a year. 
the Bank of Canada, TD, pretty much every other forecaster is ratcheted that down to 1%. Well, if you plug in those new figures to the government's own estimates, that creates a $4 billion hole in their budget. That's a bit of a problem given that we only had sort of a, a $2.4 billion margin for error, putting us into a projected deficit situation. It is a bit of crystal ball here, right? You're, you're acting based on all the information you have at your disposal. Uh, but that's one of the reasons that groups like us at the Taxpayers Federation are always advocating on the side of playing it safe. One of the criticisms we had this year was that they're cutting it too close. There's only a very small cushion. We were sort of saying, look, you got to be careful if things don't pan out as well as you think they are. We're going to start running into deficits again. Uh, it looks like we may be right on that call. So let's tie this back into the you know political angle of all this. Why was it so important for the Conservatives to put out a surplus budget this year? And how does that affect them by the economy not exactly performing in the way that they thought it would? Well, it certainly seems that that was a lot of their political messaging, uh, particularly with the fact that uh, the budget included a balanced budget act, which basically says that governments have to be in a surplus position unless some big event happens. So unless uh, there is some kind of large scale natural disaster or if a, a recession either shows up or is forecasted. In that case, the government is allowed to run a deficit, but has to present a plan of, of how they're going to get out of it. Here's the part that confuses me a little bit. So it seems like we're in this weird space where balanced budgets and surplus budgets are absolute gospel. And just getting back to sort of like the comparing it to your household scenario, um, people say, well, it's just common sense. I mean, if you're spending more than you earn in your household, it doesn't work. But are there situations where if the government spends more than the government earns, it actually could turn out to be a good thing? Yeah, sure. Uh, absolutely. Well, I, I think the balanced budget uh, legislation, I, I think having those uh, contingency clauses makes sense that you know, if you had massive wildfires in the West, like we're seeing, but even more so, I don't think you want to be in a situation where you're saying, oh, sorry, we, we, we can't uh, expend extra resources to, to put those fires out because, you know, that, that would put us in a deficit situation. I, I think that would be wholly irresponsible. So I do think there are times, again, if there are natural disasters, if you're in a state of war, or if the economy is just performing very poorly, the last thing the government should be doing is pulling money out of the economy to hit an arbitrary target. I think overall, Aaron and I would probably agree on this uh, more than a lot of people would expect, that I think in normal times, you do want to run significant surpluses but the fact of the matter is, you know, we're all, not always in normal times. Stuff happens. And because of that, you know, you, you are going to run deficits from time to time. But what happened to all those years when we were just like pulling down all kinds of revenue from the oil industry? What happened to all of that money? We cut two points of GST. That's, it's, <laughs> that's, it's an easy, easy, simple answer. That's where the money went. We, we also spent it. I'm going to commit something sacrilegious for CTF and say, you know, Maybe if you ran a deficit in one year, that wouldn't be the end of the world. The problem is it's more often the rule than it is the exception, right? Like Mike's saying, if in the good times, if when the economy was booming, and there have been a lot of boom years, if we saved the money, if we piled it up, if we stowed it away for a rainy day, we wouldn't have any problem because we'd have money then to release into the economy. The problem is we seem to find ourselves in a situation where we are always borrowing more than we have. And so even setting aside whether or not you think uh, stimulus spending is good, and, and we would dispute that, even if you assume it is. Sorry to interrupt you. I got to get you to describe stimulus spending. 
Sure. So stimulus spending is when the government will borrow money to, quote unquote, inject it into the economy. Uh, if they put more money in the economy, the thinking is people will spend more money. It'll get the economy moving again, right? A lot of the time they talk about infrastructure spending as a good stimulus. So now's the time to build bridges, build roads, build stadiums, anything that puts money into the hands of people doing work. But aside from the economic arguments, which Mike and I could go at all day, there's a political argument here. And that is, it's really, really politically easy to borrow money and spend it because politicians like to be seen cutting ribbons, handing out checks. And it's very, very politically difficult to cut back. And so that's why we run in this, I call it a one-way ratchet effect, where you see lots of people wanting to spend, and then all when times are good, then you're supposed to cut back. But people say, well, wait a minute, times are good. We have lots of money, so we should spend it now. And then times go bad, and people say, oh, we have to spend now because times are bad. So you get in this vicious cycle where it's always very tempting to spend money and very, very hard to cut it back. And that's why groups like us stand up and say, hold on, hold on. You know, we can't keep this up forever. At some point, you have to switch back onto the other side and start cutting back. Mike, you touched on something a little bit earlier where you brought up the R word, uh, R words, nine was recession. I know that the uh, finance minister has been a little bit more hesitant in, in, in embracing that term. So would you then say that we are, in fact, in a recession? And, and what does this exactly mean for, for, for Canadians? You're not allowed to say the word recession, Supriya. That know. makes it happen. Yeah, it, it is funny. It's become sort of a Voldemort term politically. So, you know, it's it's like the, the economic downturn who will not be named. And, and, te- and technically a recession would be two quarters of negative growth, right? Right, exactly. And interestingly enough, our balanced budget legislation that was uh, in budget 2015 describes a recession that way, two negative quarters of economic decline. The the first quarter came out uh, at about minus uh, 0.6%. We won't know the second quarter data until September 1st of this year, but uh, it seems across the board, forecasters are saying it's going to be negative again, which officially puts us into a recession position. And I can understand why, why people uh, think that's scary, because when you think of recession, you, you think of these large global events like 2008 and 2009. Now, we're certainly not in that case. I mean, this is a, a very minor downturn, but it's still a downturn, whether or not, uh, you know, we, we will say the R word or refuse to use it. So what do recessions mean for people then? Like if, if I'm just a regular everyday person, I, I'm at my job, how does the recession affect me day to day? Well, it might mean that you're no longer at your job. Overall, this recession is mostly isolated to three provinces, Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Newfoundland and Labrador, because of the decline of the oil and gas industries and and oil prices. And we're, we're seeing in those provinces the unemployment rate go up by more than a percentage point. Uh, we're seeing EI claims go up significantly. So that, that's what it means for the average person, that uh, you start to either worry about your job, uh, you know, am I going to be here six months from now, or in many cases, you, you see those job losses directly. Mike, you recently wrote an article for McLean's, and uh, what you said in the article is that now is the time to embrace government deficits or budget deficits. So why would now be a good time? 
Well, because I think the last thing you want to do as the economy is declining is start scrambling for things to cut or things to delay. You know, spend money in a systematic way, a smart way, play the long game and not worry that, oh, well, in this single year, we're going to be a couple billion dollars behind. So let, let's scramble and change our, all of our policies in order to hit an arbitrary target. And, and furthermore, in the long run, that actually costs us more money because interest rates are lower now than they're going to be two years from now. So we might as well invest in this infrastructure while those interest rates are low because we're going to do it anyway at some point. Why not do it when it most stimulates the economy and it's cheaper to pay for? Aaron, what's, what's your take on all this? I, if I had any confidence at all that governments would, as Mike says, take the long view um, and, you know, if this year we're going to borrow a bit more and we know that next year we're going to cut back to even it all out, I think that most people, including us, would be more comfortable with deficits. But history shows it's very, very easy to run a deficit and say, oh, next year we'll make it up. And suddenly you're 15 years on and you've been piling up the debt. Again, that's why we have a pile of debt that we do. That is the reason that uh, some of us push back very hard because as history shows us, it's very, very easy to come up with a reason to have to spend the money. Um, but it's much, much harder to cut back uh, later on. And so that is the reason we're very cautious. The other thing is this, uh, this downturn, as Mike says, whether we want to call it a recession or not, and technically it is based on the, the definition, it is a very mild one. That was one of our concerns about this balanced budget legislation was that it didn't just say a serious recession or a recession, you know, let's pick a number and say, you know, 3% shrinkage or something. If it's 0 0.4, 0 0.5, it's a very, very mild recession. If that is the trigger to say, let's turn the taps on again and start spending money, you know, we think that that's uh, kind of weak. Okay, so if the government decides that uh, slashing debt is going to be at the top of their priority list, where do we normally see the, uh, the cuts happen first? Well, I think uh, my, my concern isn't uh, so much that it's cuts, but rather delays. So what ends up happening is you get this infrastructure that's delayed for a very long time. Uh, the other place where we tend to see these delays is in military procurement. And then we, we're running, you know, 40-year-old helicopters and putting our troops in jeopardy simply because we won't you know, bite the bullet and, uh, you know, get, give our troops the equipment they need. So that's what, what tends to happen. That, uh, it, it's almost like car repair. You know, it's like, okay, we're, we're not going to change the oil because that costs a little bit of money. So we don't change the oil and then the engine seizes up and that costs us far more uh, in the long run. You know, that's really my concern here. One of the problems with politics and economics is you have incentives that are misaligned. In politics, your incentive is to do things now so people can see it now, so people will vote for you now. Sometimes in economics, doing the right thing requires thinking long term, right? So if you're going to invest in something that's not going to pay off for 15 years, but you have to get elected next year, you're going to start pushing money out the door on things which people will see right now, and um, which might get you votes, but is economically not the smartest thing to do. And so that's one of the reasons that we're always skeptical. I agree there's certain things that governments should probably have invested in in the past that they didn't because they were afraid politically. But conversely, that's why they spend. There are a lot of things. I, we use corporate welfare as an example where governments are giving money to profitable businesses under the guise of saying you're going to keep jobs. And we don't think that's appropriate. We don't think that, uh, you know, companies that make billions of dollars should be getting tax dollars. It's essentially a bribe saying promise to keep jobs here and we'll give you cash. But, but that's politically beneficial because the politician gets to go to an event, cut a ribbon, 
uh, say that they're creating or keeping jobs. And I think that's one of the biggest problems when we let politicians uh, start making economics decisions. You know, we've been hearing a lot about austerity measures, whether internationally uh, Greece or, you know, more within Canada in relation to Quebec. Uh, So what exactly are austerity measures and what happens to the human cost of those measures in the end? So austerity is when uh, governments start cutting funding in absolute terms. So they're actually spending fewer dollars in the current year than they spent the year before. While that uh, economy is either in recession or is very weak. And the issue with that is that that slows down the economy further because nobody's spending in that point. That businesses aren't investing, consumers aren't spending, and now all of a sudden, government's not spending either, and the whole economy locks up. Uh, you know, we saw that during the Great Depression. We've seen that in Greece somewhat. Now, Greece is a, as, you know, as Aaron pointed out earlier, is a special situation. But we see that, that that tends to be counterproductive when the economy is performing very, very poorly. The last thing you want to see is governments compounding that problem. Okay, so Stephen Harper has this image as a very fiscally responsible uh, human being, and the Conservative Party has almost sort of cornered the market on being the uh, the party of the economy. What is the actual truth of that? I mean, does the uh, the image bear out in relation to the facts? From where we sit, uh, it, they're a mixed bag. I mean, on the one hand, we like low taxes. They have cut taxes. We think sometimes they've cut the wrong taxes, but generally speaking, taxes are down. And so we like that. They have spent way more money than we would have liked, whether that's just in yearly spending or whether it's with the uh, giant stimulus and all the deficits and all the debt that they've added. Some of the reasons that they've done that, I would say it's fair to say is beyond their control. Like it's not Stephen Harper's fault that oil prices dropped. It's, it's not Stephen Harper's fault that the U.S. economy slowed down. But the problem in politics is if you're going to take credit for the good stuff, Uh, You're also going to get the blame when things go wrong as well. Mike, do you think it's risky now for the uh, conservatives to kind of play that that role that they are, in fact, the only ones that are responsible on the economy, given the fact that we are perhaps, you know, that's that R word we were talking about recession? We are heading into a recession. I will say it. Joe Oliver, if you don't like it, you can come at me. Well, I, I, I'm no political strategist, so let me throw that right out there. Overall, though, it, I think it is tough to say that, uh, you know, oh, you know, you, you have to stay with me because the economy's performed uh, so well under us that, you know, we're, we're going into the second recession in this regime. So I suspect where they go from here is just saying, well, the opposition is risky. Uh, so it's not that we're performing well, but the, these other guys don't know what they're doing. I don't know how well that will work. To me, that, that's almost like saying, well, well, sure, you know, we're hitting 180, but you can't trust that uh, hot shot in the minor leagues because he has no major league track record. I think at some point people start to think that's a bit of a ridiculous argument. And Aaron, what are your thoughts on this? Like, how do you think the general election will play out given the, you know, the economic downturn and what we're going to have to deal with and how voters will react to that in the booth? We're all, all obviously also watching closely to see what each of the parties present. I do think it's fair to say that most of the time, all parties now recognize the importance of being seen to be good economic managers, of being seen as competent and to understand the economy. You've seen the NDP in particular come a long way. You know, going back historically, rightly or wrongly, the NDP had a reputation as being, you know, a party that didn't get economics and spent a lot of money. I think some of that's unfair, some of it's warranted, but they, they have started to embrace, I think, uh, the center the same way the Liberals and Conservatives have. So that's going to be very, uh, very interesting. In terms of the, what the effect of a downturn will have, I think Mike is right that uh, you run the risk 
if you claim that you're the one, only one who can run the economy, but the economy's not running very well, um, you know, that, uh, that starts to become an, a worn out tale after a while. But the flip side is we saw this in 2008, remember, uh, they were in the, we were in the middle of an election and Stephen Harper managed to, uh, to increase uh, his minority from a small one to a bigger one. Um, one of the arguments is exactly that. It's, the, um, it's risky to make change. And one of the arguments I think you'll see them try and make is, sure, things aren't great now, but can you imagine how much worse it would have been or will be if we weren't there? Now, there's no way to tell what the truthful answer to that is. I mean, it's all, it's all guessing. Uh, but uh, for some people uh, in politics, rightly or wrongly, they say, well, you, you, you don't switch horses in midstream. And uh, we'll see whether or not that argument has any currency this time around. I'm actually kind of fired up now. I feel like I know a little bit more. Guys, thanks so much for explaining this one to us. Well, thank you for having us. Thanks a lot. So, Supriya, that was a lot more agreeable than I expected at the onset. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's what happens when you uh, have two smart guys talking about things they're well-versed in. Yeah. We, can, we can have a polite conversation about the economy. Look at that. Uh, one thing I noticed was that we didn't really have a lot of hyperbole. Like, this was a pretty, like, I would say reasonable conversation. We talked about Greece for a second, but... I think that uh, both Aaron and Mike were just like, well, no, like we may talk about Greece, but that's just not going to happen in Canada. We're not structurally built for that. Yeah, we're not. And I think, you know, th th there may in fact be certain actors out there that, that are throwing out the Greece comparator or maybe even the Japan comparator. But I, I don't really think that's applicable for multiple reasons. And I think it's it's irresponsible to have that kind of narrative when we're when we're not headed in that direction. And we don't need to panic people. For your average everyday Canadian, what consequences do you think um, that this conversation on debt deficits uh, and recessions hold? Well, I think your average person kind of looks at this and goes, OK, I've been told now since 2008 that Harper was the guy on the economy. And I think probably they're starting to question that. And, you know, as, as both Aaron and Mike mentioned, they're probably questioning also changing horses midstream, I think, was the term used. And these are all fair things for Canadians to be wondering. But I think when it comes down to your everyday life, most people probably fear about losing their pension, losing their jobs, mortgage rates going up, interest rates going up. And, and those are the kinds of things that I think people are really concerned about. As for the changing horses midstream thing, and this is not me like bashing the conservatives. The conservatives just happen to be the government in power right now. So I am going to criticize. We keep on talking about um, running the government like a business, which is completely disingenuous. Like if you ran the government like a business, this whole country would just be like a big smoking crater. <laughs> but if you're going to make that comparison, well, when a CEO of a company carries a company through several bad quarters. Like the, the company is just not doing well. We don't see like any positive outlook on the horizon. What happens to that CEO? Yeah, they get canned by the board of directors. And could the CEO come back and say, well, you can't change horses midstream? No. If you're going to use that comparison, you got to use it all the way. So if the government in power right now isn't doing a good job on the economy and they're pitching themselves as the party that's best for the economy, well, perhaps we should be looking for somebody else to take the reins. Yeah, or perhaps they should look at a different message because maybe that might not be the best one in these times. <laughs> one thing that, I th um, that we didn't actually get into, and I notice this happens all the time, is that we confuse the market with the economy. So if the market, quote unquote, is not doing so well, we assume everything is bad. For example, if the TSX, the Toronto Stock Exchange, slides off a few points, we assume everything is bad. And then we carry that criticism over to the government saying, well, you have to do more to bring back the economy. And I think that not distinguishing between the two and not distinguishing how households work and how businesses work and how the government works 
creates that uh, that culture of fear around our debt. Yeah, but I, I think that's the whole point. Is if you have if you get people afraid of something, then then politicians can work their messaging and work their magic and try and get people to vote for them because it's fear mongering for a reason. You know what I'm afraid of? What? I'm afraid of the fact that I actually was sitting here nodding my head when uh, when when Aaron from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation was making a bunch of points. I was like, yeah, that's actually not so bad. For the longest time, and I'm going to be very straight up with this. Like I thought they were just here to like get rid of all of our wonderful social programs, but. I can understand where he's coming from now. Yeah, I mean, I can. I've always understood where they were coming from. Look, I like like lower taxes, the the better to a degree, as long as it's not you know bankrupting the country and harming people on a day to day basis. You know, no tax on tampons that came into effect July first. I am hella happy. <laughs> I no longer have to pay taxes on my lady products. That's our episode for this week. If you'd like to continue the conversation, and we really love it when you do. Check us out on Twitter. If you go search Canada Land Commons, it will be the first result you find. Big shout out to our producer, Imogen Burchard. If you're looking for us on the web, the interweb that's on computers nowadays, it is canadalandshow.com. If you want to send us an email, well, you can send me one. I'm Andre at CanadaLandShow.com. You can subscribe to us through Stitcher, iTunes, or wherever it is you get your podcast. If you love the show, support it. Chip in at Patreon.com slash CanadaLand. Show us love. Tweet about the show. Or you can just show us love the old-fashioned way and tell your friends to listen to us, too. Tell everybody. Tell your moms, your pops, your teacher, your friends, your family. And give us a review. Show us some love with that wonderful five-star rating. The next episode of Canada Land Shortcuts is back on Thursday. Desmond Cole will be back for the next Canada Land Commons on Tuesday. This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's stamps.com, code PROGRAM.